0: New California case law, new California statutes, that's what I discuss in this podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Eric Ganchi I'm a trial lawyer at Casey Gary in San Diego and I focus my practice on TBI, brain injury cases and trials. I'm also a total nerd about tracking new laws as this emerging and developing info can win and lose cases. Please enjoy my podcast, The Ganchi Law Update, a Casey Gary Podcast. Hey folks, thanks again for uh, checking in, subscribing, sharing all the things that we can do in the social world. These recent um, cases that I'm going to be talking about, they're California cases that have come out over the last few months, but I'm going to start with this first one called Randy's Trucking Incorporated, which deals with brain injury cases, which is a focus of mine, and specifically as it relates to disclosure of raw data. And audio files from neuropsychological evaluations. I think that it's going to be a very important case and could possibly turn into some legislation down the road. So here's the information on Randy's Trucking Incorporated and I have the case site in the show notes so you can check those out. In California civil litigation, if plaintiff alleges a brain injury, TBI, many times defense will hire a neuropsychologist as an expert to evaluate plaintiff for the claimed injuries, and plaintiff can do the same exact thing too. The world of neuropsychology has tests where many times the raw testing data, questions, and grading format is not disclosed, unless you're a neuropsychologist, um, from neuropsychologist to neuropsychologist. Well, that can become a problem if a retained neuropsychologist is not doing ethical objective testing, and that's on either side, either plaintiff or defense. Um, And it can be a further problem if the expert is then allowed to testify to this improper science and findings to a jury at trial, because at trial... Uh, What I always like to say is that it's never what happened. It's what can be proven that happened. Jurors get what they get, (laughs) the evidence before them. And if it's wrong evidence, that is really, really unobjective, i.e. it's wrong. In a world of objectivity and full disclosures, it can be important to receive this raw data to evaluate evidence and uncover things that are wrong, false, and improper. Well, now we have a California case directly on point regarding this issue, which is the May 22nd, 2023 published opinion, Randy's Trucking Incorporated versus the Superior Court of Kern County, Buttram. And the case site is in the show notes. Those, um, these are the facts of Randy's trucking. Defendant caused a car crash to plaintiff and plaintiff alleged a brain injury. Defendant retained Dr. Tara Victor as a neuropsychologist who ran tests on plaintiff, plaintiff sought to obtain that raw test data. Defense objected, and although, um, and although asked the court, sorry, defense objected, although asked the court to allow to transfer the testing information to plaintiff's expert rather than plaintiff's counsel. The court disagreed with defense and ordered defense to produce the raw data directly to plaintiff counsel in accordance with a protective order then then defense's neuropsychologist recused herself. Here's a direct language from from the case, or a direct quote from the case. After defendants contacted two other neuropsychologists, which were Dr. Kyle Boone and Dr. Lori Holt, who stated they also could not comply with the transmission order, defendants moved for reconsideration of the transmission order. The court denied the motion. Let's start with some information about this. Per California Code of Civil Procedure Section 2032.530, both the examiner and examinee have the right to record a mental examination by audio technology. Pursuant to CCP 2032.610 sub A sub 1, that's in the show notes, if a party submits to a mental examination, that party has the option of making a written demand that the party seeking the examination deliver to the demanding party A copy of a detailed written report setting out the history, examinations, findings, including the results of all tests made, diagnosis, prognosis, and conclusions of the examiner. If the option is exercised, a copy of the requested reports must be delivered within 30 days after service of the demand or within 15 days of trial, whichever is earlier. That's CCP 2032.610 at subsection B. And case law says this. There is no statutory authority, however, precluding a trial court from ordering the disclosure of test materials or test data when ordering a mental examination. The court here analyzes the 2006 case Carpenter versus Superior Court. The, that citation is in the show notes. And that um, the Carpenter case says this, or the court here in Randy's Trucking says this about Carpenter. While Carpenter did not decide whether an examiner's ethical and professional obligations precluded disclosing the test questions and examinee's answers to the examinee, the appellate court recognized the trial court has discretion to order the disclosure of such materials even if no statute authorizes it. While the Carpenter court did not specifically analyze CCP section 2032.610 in making its observation given the trial court's broad discretion in discovery matters, the trial court nevertheless has the power to order disclosure of test materials and data to plaintiff's attorney. Back to the facts of this case, defense here tries to argue a 2015 case called Roe versus Superior Court at 2000 already said 2015 case, Uh, that citation's in the show notes, where the trial court ordered the examiners to provide the reports statutorily required by CCP section 2032.610, but it specified the plaintiffs were not entitled to the written testing materials and the minors' answers without further court order. But the court here addresses Roe alongside Carpenter by saying, at best, Roe stands for the proposition that a trial court is not required to order the production of test materials or test data under CCP Section 2032.610. Under Carpenter, however, given the trial court's broad discretion in discovery matters, it retains the discretion to order the production of such materials. Moreover, although not developed by either party since CCP Section 2032.530, Subsection A, grants the examinee the right to record a mental examination by audio technology, it implies the examinee may retain a copy of the audio recording. Whereas here, the trial court ordered the examiner to record the examination, the trial court had discretion to order the examiner to provide a copy to the examinee. Therefore, we conclude the trial court here had the discretion to order the production of the raw data and audio recording as stated in its order. The next issue here is then, whether the trial court abused its discretion in ordering transmission of the raw data and audio recording to plaintiff's counsel. To this, defense-retained expert filed a declaration to try and explain this, saying, the problems with third-party observations and recording the examination, including, one, compromising the validity of future neuropsychological test results, two, potential misuse and misinterpretation of tests by untrained third-party observations, who have no compelling interest in pr- protection of copyrighted test content, three, potential conflicts of the APA, ethical standards, and key several key principles in the specialty guidelines for forensic psychology of the American Psychological Association from 2013, four, the increased likelihood test content and instructions would be disseminated, which raises the risk that motivated parties will coach and prepare examinees for testing in advance specifically to influence test results, and five, lawyers involved in brain injury litigation routinely coach their clients how to approach neuropsychological testing to their advantage. Dr. Victor asserted third-party observations confers no overriding benefits that offset the significant cost of exposing test materials. However, this court again disagrees with the defense, saying... While Dr. Victor explained the dangers associated with third-party observations, she did not explain why a protective order would not ameliorate those dangers. She also did not explain why her ethical obligations would be violated if a court ordered her to disclose the raw data and audio recordings to plaintiff's attorney subject to a protective order. The court further analyzes, Weighed against this evidence is plaintiff's right to take discovery and cross examination, um, to take discovery and cross examine defendants' expert witnesses, which includes being able to examine the expert on the matter upon which the expert's opinion is based and the reasons for that opinion. Without the raw data and audio recording, Plaintiffs cannot effectively scrutinize the way the data was collected, determine if there are discrepancies, and cross-examine the neuropsychologist on the basis and reasons for the neuropsychologist's opinion. The court also gives these powerful statements. Disclosure of these materials may help to protect against abuse and disputes over what transpired during the examination. And the purpose of audio taping the examination is to ensure that the examiner does not overstep the bounds set by the court for the mental examination, that the context of the responses can be judged for purposes of trial, that the examinee's interests are protected, especially since the examinee's counsel ordinarily will not be present for a neuropsychological evaluation, and that any evidence of abuse can be presented to the court without plaintiffs' access to the audio tape and raw data, plaintiffs cannot adequately protect these interests. Defense also argues plaintiffs could violate a protective order for the produced raw data and audio recording. Again, the court here disagrees, saying the protective order can be enforced against plaintiff's attorney if his, he or his staff were to violate it by contempt or other sanctions. And to that, technology makes transmission of highly sensitive information possible in many ways, in many cases, involving sensitive information, including personal injury, employment, business torts, and intellectual property. There is no evidence that attorneys regularly violate protective orders, including those concerning psychological or, or neuropsychological testing materials. <clears throat> in some, the trial court did not abuse its discretion in ordering transmission of raw data and audio recording to plaintiff's attorney subject to a protective order, as plaintiffs demonstrated a need for the materials and the protective order would address the concerns about test security and integration. Can you claim negligent infliction of emotional distress, N-I-E-D, even if you're not physically at the scene of incident? If you were present, and I'm putting that in air quotes, if you were present at an incident caused to a direct plaintiff and suffer emotional distress but are not the direct plaintiff, can you make a claim against the defendant who caused the incident against the direct plaintiff? Let me give you an example. If you are walking with someone in a crosswalk across the street and a driver crashes into the person you are walking with, Can you make a claim for having suffered emotional injuries from seeing that crash? The answer per the law is usually, it depends. And that is the answer here, (laughs) along with insight from this April 2023 Court of Appeal decision, Downey versus City of Riverside. The citation is in the show notes, but it is 90 Cal App 5th, 1033. To start, the California civil jury instruction is KC 1621, which can be given to the jurors like this. Plaintiff claims that she suffered serious emotional emotional distress as a result of perceiving an injury to, or to the death of, plaintiff, by another name, the direct plaintiff. To establish this claim, the witnessing plaintiff must prove all of the following. One, that defendant negligently caused injury injury to direct plaintiff, two, that when the incident that caused injury to direct plaintiff occurred, the witnessing plaintiff was present at the scene, three, that witnessing plaintiff was then aware that the incident was causing injury to the direct plaintiff, four, that the witnessing plaintiff suffered serious emotional emotional distress, and five, that defendant's conduct was a substantial factor in causing the witnessing plaintiff's serious emotional distress. There's more law um, that goes along with proving an N-I-E-D claim like this um, that case law has further interpreted this N-I-E-D claim to require the witnessing plaintiff to be closely related to the injury victim. Now fast forward to this Downey versus City of Riverside case. What happens in in this case? So witnessing plaintiff is on the phone with the direct plaintiff, and witnessing plaintiff is the mother of the direct plaintiff. One defendant here is the city of Riverside, which plaintiffs allege maintained its vegetation and trees in an unsafe way, which created an unsafe obstruction of view for drivers, and then which caused a driver to crash into the direct plaintiff. During this crash, witness witnessing plaintiff was not physically present at the scene but rather on the phone with the direct plaintiff like i said the direct language from the case is this she alleged that because she was on the phone with vance the daughter the direct plaintiff and heard the sounds of the crash and its aftermath she was present or virtually present at the scene when the collision happened and had contemporaneous sensory awareness of the connection between the injury causing traffic collision, and the grievous injury suffered by direct plaintiff as a result, thereby causing Downey, the witnessing plaintiff, (laughs) serious emotional injuries and damages. With this, here's one legal question. If you are only on the phone and not physically at the scene of the incident, can you claim you were present at the scene as KC 1621 requires? The answer is no, you need not be physically present. Downey here cites to an older classic case, Thing versus La Chusas, uh, uh which is a 1989 case decision cited as 48 Cal 3rd 644, that's in the show notes. And the case here cites, to be sure, Thing's requirement that the plaintiff be contemporaneously aware of the injury-producing event has not been interpreted as requiring visual perception of an impact on the victim. A plaintiff may recover based on an event perceived by other senses so long as the event is contemporaneously understood as causing injury to a close relative. So so we have an answer to that issue. But there's another issue with Downey. Can witnessing plaintiff here claim she was present at the scene? Yes. However, there was issue to the allegation against the city of the element whether the witnessing plaintiff was then aware that the incident was causing injury to the direct plaintiff. Was witnessing plaintiff aware the crash happened? Sure, but was witnessing plaintiff aware either the city or the driver's alleged negligence caused the incident? That's the part the court takes issue with here. The court says someone who hears an accident but does the, but does not then know it is causing injury to a relative does not have a viable claim for negli- negligent infliction of emotional distress even if the missing knowledge is acquired moments later the court decides based on how plaintiff filed this complaint there are no allegations showing that the time of the accident Downey was then aware that the city or the defendant driver's acts or omissions with respect to the traffic markings at the intersection or landscaping of surrounding property caused the accident or injured the direct plaintiff. Even if the claimed dangerous conditions were visible and obvious, Downey's complaint establishes she was not physically present at the scene to observe them. Ultimately, the court here finds witnessing plaintiff plaintiff's complaint deficient, but allows her to amend the complaint and see if witnessing plaintiff can cure these deficiencies. The court's direct language is the witnessing plaintiff must allege facts showing she had contemporaneous sensory awareness of the casual connect causal connection between the defendant's negligent conduct and the resulting injury. The complaint as presently stated, styled, does not contain such facts and thus it does not state a negligent infliction of emotional distress cause of action. Witnessing plaintiff here argued she can allege additional facts establishing that she had familiarity with and knowledge and awareness of the intersection and the dangerous conditions created by city and the defendant driver. So here the court allows witnessing plaintiff to amend her complaint. Can you set a preference trial in California to be heard sooner? There is a recent decision called Pabla versus Superior Court, Dual Arch International that I'll talk about, Uh, right now (laughs) in the california civil court system california code of civil procedure section 36 allows you to accelerate your litigation by setting a trial date sooner the law considers these preference trials and states per ccp 36 sub a a court a superior court lacks discretion and shall grant preference to a party over 70 years of age upon making a showing one that the party has a substantial interest in the action as a whole and two the health of the party is such that a preference is necessary to prevent prejudicing the party's interest in the litigation this is a direct quote coming from this recent decision which is pabla versus superior court um the case site which is in the show notes is 90 cal app 5th 599 in pabla Plaintiff, 73 years old, uh, plaintiff is or was 73 years old and suffered from asthma and hypertension, had recently undergone kidney surgery and was receiving dialysis. The court granted preference per CCP 36, but failed to set the trial date within 120 days after granting the CCP 36 petition as required. Defense here tries to interpret the 2022 case titled Isaac versus Superior Court. In the show notes, but it's cited as 73 Cal App 5th, 792, and defense argues the Superior Court had the discretion to balance interests of judicial economy with the prefer- preferential trial-setting provisions of Section 36, CCP 36. The court here says, nope, saying that Isaac the Isaac Court differentiated coordinated proceedings from ordinary proceedings and nothing in the opinion applies Section 36 should be applied differently in any in, in other contexts. Courts have long recognized that the legislature intended Section 36 to be mandatory in circumstances that appear to be present here. The court is very clear about how the court reads and understands Isaac in saying, accordingly, we refuse to read Isaac as providing superior courts discretion to avoid strictly applying the mandatory provisions of Section 36 in ordinary civil proceedings so here the court agrees with the preference plaintiff and orders a trial date set within 120 days of granting plaintiffs petition for preference can an electric scooter company be liable for scooters lying around we've seen this in San Diego and I'm sure other parts of everywhere <laughs> you What happens is we have a messy sidewalk littered by electronic scooters whether they are scooter versions from bird or lyft or uber or some other company the scooter craze has swept through san diego um, and perhaps your city to to help in part with traffic and ease of commuting but also to bring the ability for scooter riders to leave scooters lying around sidewalks streets yards (laughs) they put them on roofs if they could With this scooter litter, as I'll call it, can a scooter company be liable for a scooter left out to allow someone to trip and fall over it? April 10th, 2023, a California Court of Appeal decided and published Hakala versus Bird Rides Incorporated, which is cited as 2023-90 Cal-App 5th-292, which is in the show notes, and gives insight and law on this topic. So let's start with what happened in Hakala versus Bird. In 2017, Bird had begun in Los Angeles, where this case t- takes place, their scooter rental system, where people could rent the scooter using a dockless system of starting and ending the rental to then to then dump the scooter around town. Possibly, November 23, 2019, plaintiff Hakala was walking on a city sidewalk just after twilight. The sidewalk was crowded with holiday shoppers, and Hakala did not see the back wheel of the scooter sticking out from behind a trash can. She tripped on the scooter, fell, and sustained serious physical injuries. Plaintiff filed a suit against Bird and the city, claiming negligence and other related claims like dangerous condition on a public property. But the trial court sustained defendant's demurrer for both bird and the city without leave to amend concluding neither bird nor the city owed plaintiff a duty of care and then plaintiff appealed i'll give the general ruling holding and holding here before diving deeper this court upheld the ruling in favor of the city but reversed the ruling in favor of bird by saying bird may be liable for breaching its general duty under california civil code section 1714 to use ordinary care or skill in the management of its property. Per California Civil Code 1714 Sub A, everyone is responsible not only for the result of his or her willful acts, but also for the for an injury occasioned by another by his or her want of ordinary care or skill in the management of his or her property or person except so far as the latter has willfully or by want of ordinary care brought the injury upon himself or herself. What were Byrd's arguments here? They, um, These arguments included this. Byrd contends this rule of general application does not apply to plaintiffs negligence claims because in Bird's telling Hakala did not suffer her alleged injuries as a result of the company's conduct instead bird maintains Hakala's injuries were caused by the conduct of an unidentified third party who without any urging from bird left a sc- bird scooter behind a trash can in violation of the city's parking standards. How Plaintiff pleaded her complaint was important. When Plaintiff filed her complaint, she alleged Bird knew that without proper instruction, its customers and agents were likely to leave scooters on sidewalks in a manner that posed a tripping hazard to pedestrians. Plaintiff also alleged Bird knew that unless its scooters had always on front and back lights, the scooters would not be visible to pedestrians at night. But again, despite this knowledge, Bird alleged failed to install always on front and back lights that were visible from a distance of at least 300 feet on its scooters as required by its permit. She further alleged Byrd's management of its property contributed to the risk. Holding in favor of the plaintiff, the court here says, because the foregoing foregoing allegations ground plaintiff's negligence claims upon Byrd's conduct and not solely the conduct of a third party, this is not a case that requires a special relationship to find Bird had a duty to prevent injuries alleged allegedly occasioned by Bird's want of ordinary care or skill in the management of its property, namely the Bird scooter that injured Hakala. However, the court is also careful not to step on the toes of the trier of fact, as the court says... We emphasize that our holding today is limited to a legal determination that Bird owed plaintiff the general duty codified in section 1714 to use ordinary care in the management of its property. The court continues saying, We consider plaintiffs breach allegations only to determine whether Bird's general duty broadly encompasses the category of negligent conduct alleged, but we leave for the trier of fact to determine based on the evidence, whether any specific conduct constitutes a breach of Byrd's duty to exercise ordinary care in the management of its property and whether that breach caused plaintiff's alleged injuries. So the court allows plaintiff's complaint to proceed against Byrd with one last quote from the court. Byrd's entire conduct, deploying dockless scooters onto public streets, created the risk that those scooters could become hazards for pedestrians and others unless Bird took affirmative measures to prevent this harm. And that concludes this episode of the Ganchi Law Update. Thanks for listening, subscribing, and sharing. Please visit cglaw.com for further blogs, case updates, and news about our firm. That's cglaw, as in caseygarylaw.com.